Hanukkah ended last night, and so now we're at 100% Christmas now. What do you guys celebrate this time of year? Uh, well, mostly capitalism, to be honest. <laughs> the global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. The president took great care not to prejudge final status negotiations in any way, including the specific boundaries of Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem. Did he? I mean, did he though? This president doesn't have the best record when it comes to taking great care not to make prejudgments. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. And that's just Trump's Islamophobia. He's also well known for his anti-immigrant racial slurs. They're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. So in the man's own words, let's try and figure out what the hell is going on. To do this, I need to talk to an expert on American politics. And I can't think of a better one than another University of Ottawa colleague, Dr. Emily Regan-Wills. Okay, um, so my name's Emily Regan-Wills. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, and I teach a mixture of American politics and comparative politics with a focus on the Middle East and on Muslim and Arab communities uh, in North America. Um, And the project I'm running right now is called Community Mobilization in Crisis. You can find us on Facebook at UOttawaCMIC, and we'd love for you to come follow all the cool work we're doing there, highlighting um, community organizing initiatives in uh, the Arab world in particular and in countries in crisis all over the world. Um, In terms of uh, my publications that might be interesting to folks on this issue, I have an article in the Journal of Borderland Studies on um, the West Bank Wall, and particularly how discourse around the West Bank Wall is used differently in um, uh, pro-Israeli advocacy communities and pro-Palestinian advocacy communities. And um, I also have a bunch of published articles on Palestine activism and uh, questions of what I call discursive misrecognition for Arab communities in the U.S. What's uh, discursive misrecognition? So discursive misrecognition is a a concept that I worked on like a good doctoral student when I was doing my dissertation because I really wanted to come up with a way to talk about the ways in which Arab Americans are discouraged from speaking about their experiences in American public life. Um, There's a sense in which once you are trying to speak as an Arab or as a Muslim, and then I actually think lots of marginalized groups experience this. I'm just kind of highlighting it in the Arab American experience. When you try to speak, your words are not taken as legitimate. 
Um, you are supposed to begin your statements with certain platitudes or promises that take up a lot of space. So this is, you will have to spend a lot of time renouncing terrorism, whereas everybody else just gets to talk. Um, you are required to um, answer questions repeatedly. There's this uh, great phrase that Louise Kankar developed um, in terms of knowledge games, where you state something that happened to you and people tell you that's not true. Um, and all of these forms of discursive malpractice occur really, really regularly. Um, to Arab Americans who are trying to speak about politics. And so one of the consequences is that people act opt out of political life. They say, look, it's not worth it talking about politics, so I'm going to go do something else over there. Um, and I think that's a problem for America, the discourse community in general. I think it's a problem for everybody when people choose to opt out of political life because participating in it is too complicated and doesn't actually allow them the freedom to speak and take any position. Um, so what I've been thinking about is how do we move past spaces where there are so many pre-existing requirements on people with marginalized identities and create discursive situations where we can have free and open debate in a really meaningful sense and not merely in the technically you're allowed to talk sense. So. That's what I've been building on is how, how can we talk better with each other about politics? I mean, that's really, uh, that's fascinating. It certainly uh, links up with some of the questions I was going to ask you um, in, in a moment about um, this, this, the political situation uh, under Trump and, and how it's changed uh, and perhaps how it hasn't changed in some respects. Let's just start with the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the latest uh, happenings around Jerusalem because um, there was a, a vote at this UN Security Council I think on Monday night um, where uh, all 14 members uh, voted uh, apart from the United States voted to censure for the United States for recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital and for moving the the embassy there uh, and of course Nikki Haley um, the US ambassador vetoed and uh, sort of quite ominously threatened or seemed to threaten the allies that the United States wouldn't forget um, uh, what had happened here today. So what's what's your reactions to the uh, first the initial announcement to move the cap to, to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital um, then the, uh, and then the follow up. And, and do you have any thoughts on, on what's motivating these moves by the by the Trump administration? Yeah, well, so I have a I have a framework that I always use when I'm uh, I've developed it intensely over this past year when I'm evaluating Trump administration action. Um, and my question is always, is this normal Republican business? Is this accidentally he stumbled on doing something correctly? That's barely ever happened. Is it um, evil or is it stupid? Right. These are kind of the four options I see out of Trump's policy action. And because um, <laughs> this is it. Right. Um, and I'm I think I'm in category stupid on the um, on the Jerusalem announcement, um, though. I think it's got a it's got a heavy dose of normal Republican as well, by which I mean um, normal politics in the U.S. involves a lot of taking the Israeli right on as state's value and as representatives of, uh, of Israel properly. 
um, rather than acknowledging the kind of deep divisions within Israeli society over how political issues should be resolved, right? And so um, the alliance between the American right and the Israeli right, like they, they get each other and there's a lot of intellectual overlap. And so to a certain extent, you always see some um, tacking towards this on uh, Republican administrations in the U.S., right? Um, and the fact that a right-wing government in Israel coincides with a right-wing government in the U.S. Okay, so that's going to make everybody more buddy-buddy in that division. Um, the thing about the announcement is it's largely a piece of political theater, which is what the Trump administration does best. And um, the it does seem like the real consequences of it in terms of, like, will the U.S. ever actually shift the embassy? Well, the U.S. has been saying someday when it's safe, we'll shift the embassy for, you know, ever, basically. Um, and so uh, that does suggest that they retained the ability in their announcement to wait to shift the embassy, though I think they're going to move forward in some some kind of little steps in that direction. But in that case, it strikes me as a kind of slight intensification of the um, of, of the kind of existing way right governments in the U.S. interact with right governments in Israel. So that that strikes me as normal Republican. But the stupid thing about it is that I'm unclear why now and why in this way. Um, this does not seem to match up to any strong priorities of the government in terms of um, remaking the U.S.'s relationship to the Middle East. Um, nominally, there's an interest, the, the, there is a stated intention from the government that there should be movement on Israel-Palestine and that um, the U.S. will support a negotiated solution. Um, this does not help that in the least. Um, there's also a line of analysis I've seen that I find very persuasive that um, essentially this was a gift to the Israeli government for which nothing was gotten in return in negotiation. Um, and so unless there's something we don't know about. And so it's kind of like it's unclear why this was the moment at which this had to happen. Right. Um, so, yeah. So this is this is it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, much as many Trump administration proposals do not make a lot of sense to me. Um, I don't see any clear strategic gain for the U.S. The one audience I can know for fact it pleases is uh, millennialist Christians in the U.S. who are waiting to bring about the rapture. Um, and that's a constituency that, the, that Trump needs to keep happy because uh, can't convince them on many other grounds, but I, I don't think I think this might be an overestimation of their worth in this context. I mean, that, is is there sort of a, a synergy between between the between Trump's announcements on Jerusalem and these broader sort of uh, Islamophobic uh, rhetoric around Muslim bans and so on? Is this is this normal Republican Trump stupid? Or I'm assuming that it's neither. It's not uh, uh, accidentally good. So it could be normal Republican Trump stupid or evil. Um, mixture of things. Um, so I don't necessarily, I mean, so I'm not convinced that there's a lot of categorical overlap between the Trump's administration's actions around Muslim communities in the U.S. and its actions on Jerusalem, which 
is to say that I think um, the way they're thinking about Jerusalem is about pleasing allies, keeping people kind of happy and coordinated, right? Um, I don't think there's like a message being given to the Palestinian Authority in this. Um, I don't think there's intentionally a um, swipe being given to Muslim communities worldwide about this. I really think this is about um, kind of keeping allies happy and ensuring that, you know, both domestic political allies on the religious right and um, Israel as a regional ally. And it's worth remembering that um, Trump pissed off Israel early in his presidency by relating um, Israeli intelligence to Russia in unsecured manners, um, which led to Israel retracting some of its intelligence sharing with the U.S. Um, And I have no idea if that has been so long ago and so much has happened in the past year that nobody even remembers that anymore, but it might still be a factor, right? Um, And so, so I guess I locate the Jerusalem decision around that access, whereas I locate the Muslim bans, which incidentally belong to category both stupid and evil, though it got less stupid as they kept having to try again to get it through. Because um, the first version was just like, like every way you could get this wrong, they got it wrong simultaneously. The subsequent versions, they've fixed minor problems enough to make it almost legal. Um, but um, that strikes me as both drawing on, I believe, Trump's legitimate xenophobia and Islamophobia and racism, that he really believes Muslims do not belong in America and should be kept out of it. And then his pandering to his racist, Islamophobic, scared domestic base, um, such that it's a, uh, a kind of way of pleasing people who have a kind of existential terror about the existence of difference, right? So his Muslim ban strikes me as much more on the piece of his wall, right? And they're both going so well in terms of success in these policy areas um, than it does with his policy on Jerusalem. I would uh, hesitate to say that I think a lot of his domestic base doesn't understand the implications of the Jerusalem decision. It's worth saying that um, baseline American knowledge on uh, on Israel-Palestine is incredibly low. Um, Americans are sympathetic to Israel, not because they have a well-developed framework for understanding the conflict, but because they've just kind of been told the Israelis are the good guys. Um, And the complexity of the situation of Jerusalem, where there are um, multiple religious claims to it and multiple political claims to it, and the religious and political claims draw from each other in complex ways, like that's that's way over the political heads of most Americans' knowledge on the region. So I would wager that the average American who hasn't thought about these issues and doesn't have either a high level of knowledge about them from a right-wing Christian background, from a uh, Zionist background, or from a pro-Palestinian background, if you don't have one of those backgrounds, you're you're not really going to understand the stakes in the Jerusalem issue. Like, I really don't think there's any domestic benefit to him on this, apart from the real millennialists. 
Oh yeah, it's really interesting. Thanks um, for that. So, so the so while they're not directly connected, you would you would put them. You, there's an underlying sort of Islamophobia. Would you, would you suggest that's uh, beneath them? I think you meant. Um, they said that, that there's there's two cat. There's two sort of types of Islamophobia. There's there's Trump's sort of genuine personal uh, beliefs versus um, the, his pandering. To, to the to, to his base into um, these to these uh, these right wing millennial Christians as you said, um, so um, <clears throat> is it? I mean, given that, do you think is there is there a is there something we can definitively sort of grasp as American Islamophobia, uh, which pre exists Trump, or um, or how it, how. How 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 should we best talk about uh, talk about this? Is Islamophobia even the right term? So so I mean I I find it really difficult to parse out right terms for these issues because I find that issues of Islamophobia that is specifically about um, popular constructions of Islam and what Muslims are um, versus the generalized xenophobia of um, many parts of the U.S. where culturally different minorities are considered very intimidating. Um, I think these blend together in a lot of ways. Um, and so, and then it's also, there's kind of specific forms of ethnic prejudice, right? That play out whether the Muslim community in that people are dealing with is South Asian immigrants, whether it's Middle Eastern immigrants, um, whether it's uh, African American, either converts or African immigrants who are Muslim. There's a kind of huge divide in how racialized different groups of Muslims are thought about by Americans. And of course, most Americans do not have the knowledge base to kind of differentiate conceptually among all these different things, um, just because it's, it's unfamiliar to them. Um, so what I would say is that there is a component that is really specifically about Islamic communities or Muslim communities being seen as cultural threats. Um, largely these kinds of fears are, are exist in ignorance, right? And don't have a lot of strong basis in what people know and understand about Islam. Um, and they are very closely tied up to kind of fears about, um, violence. And so Islamophobia is deeply about fear of Islamic terrorism, right? Um, and that's, there's, there's other elements of it that are about, you know, how will our culture have to change if we have to live among those people? Um, but it's a different kind of direction, right? Um, so what I would say about kind of how American Islamophobia has shifted and changed in the, the post-Trump context, it existed before. There's a long, long history of, you know, media Islamophobia, casual racism, casual, like, discussions of how Muslims are different, um, uh, Muslims being treated differently by governments and other things. Um, there was this great kind of hilarious moment when I was doing my fieldwork in New York City when they were trying to get um, the two Eids as school holidays in uh, the New York City public school system. And Mayor Bloomberg said, well, if we gave that, we can't give everybody's religious holidays off. We'd never have school. And every single newspaper article after that proceeded to detail all the Christian and Jewish holidays public school system had off. Um, so everybody caught that that was a crap argument, <laughs> right? But like 
people thought it was like that seemed instinctual to people to be like, but Muslim holidays are somehow different because we don't know why reasons. Um, so that, that existed. Right. But the thing that became really, really clear with Trump's campaign is first he demonstrated convincingly that you could be as Islamophobic and racist as you wanted, and it will build your vote percentage. Right. The worse he doubled down, the more he was succeeding. And once he demonstrated that, pretty much the entire Republican field jumped in and tried to top him. Right. And they couldn't top him because they all were trying to act within like vaguely normal Republican rhetoric. And he was willing to go to Mars. Right. Um, Figuratively, not literally. Um, and then, so that was kind of what we saw is that they realized there was no point of diminishing returns for being Islamophobic. And the other thing is that Trump did such a good job linking Islamophobia to generalized xenophobia, right? Which not that that link hadn't been made before, but he just really, really intensified it and made it really all about othering Muslim communities and communities perceived as immigrant altogether, right? And so that kind of depth of the willingness to officially express that sort of Islamophobia, be, that's what was new, right? The people who he got to vote for him or who were able to identify, you know, immigration or terrorism as their key issues, you know, they didn't become Islamophobic or xenophobic or racist through listening to him, but he gave a conduit and a language for it and put it center stage in a way other political actors hadn't. Oh, yeah, that's that's really interesting uh, analysis on that, really. Um, <clears throat> so I suppose what, what you're saying then is is, is Trump is uh, Trump is an accelerant uh, and he's, he's perhaps even transformed something that that existed before in some form or other into something which is which is new and, and, and more frightening in, in the in the form that it's uh, that it's become. Um I think um I, I wanna ask you about whether how this this sort of uh, compares with the kind of um xenophobia and Islamophobia that, that exists elsewhere. Because I'm a I'm aware that often when I talk to Americans I come off as a, as a smug European who pretends there's no you know there's no problems back home uh, and obviously looking at Britain now there's all sorts of problems around racism and and, and um, well, horrible things to do with Brexit <clears throat> but we both live in Canada so so let's talk about Canada how um, how does the the political situation around Islamophobia and racism compare? in the U.S. to, to Canada? Yeah, um, so I, I sometimes joke about living in smugistan um, in Canada because we're, we, we always feel we're doing so much better than our southern neighbor. Um, and my, my joke is always we only look good if you're only comparing us to the U.S. Um, when I teach U.S. politics because I want to break that in my students early. <laughs> um, so what I would say kind of about the more global context, well, I'll say about Canada is that Canada, the, the very good thing that Canada does on issues of Islamophobia is that formal official discourses tend to have a kind of fuzzy liberal multiculturalism about them, such that 
our representations in media will include identifiably Muslim people, women in hijab or ethnic minorities, right? Visible minorities show up in the kind of visual landscape of our media elite and all of that business, right? Um, at least in English Canada, I know the dynamics are really different in French Canada. Um, but even there, I think you can kind of see the way there's, a, there's an intentional way to say, okay, we know Canada is a diverse country. We should formally represent this diversity in some way, right? I'm always kind of impressed with ethnic diversity on Canadian TV versus ethnic diversity on American TV, right? But the issue is once you have kind of put that, that kind of liberal multiculturalism angle on, it's really easy to exempt yourself from actually thinking critically about whether you're doing the right things, right? Um, we know that Islamophobia continues to exist in a reasonable proportion of Canadians um, and that there are still plenty of Canadians who are xenophobic, who are worried about their um, Muslim neighbors being somehow threatening um, because we can see that information on public opinion polls. Um, we can see it in the success of people in the conservative party for making these arguments. Um, the big difference in public opinion or in public framing between the U.S. and Canada on these issues is around the, the issue of the fact that the elites of Canada are really committed to the liberal multiculturalist narrative, and the elites in the U.S. are much more divided, right? So elite narratives in Canada will have a bigger gap for public opinion, but we'll be trying to shape it in a way that has makes some kind of minimal differences. So this is, I mean, this is my read of how, of how this kind of this difference, this difference works. Um, I think there's a, there's a real tendency in English Canada to kind of put off Islamophobia as, as being something either Americans have or French Canadians have. And uh, that is absolutely not the case. Um, I, I'm reminded, uh, I went to France for the first time as a teenager, but I think the story is from when I was in, in Paris as a 20-something. As a and I remember seeing Front National posters up in Paris. And, you know, on the one hand, I'd, I'd known about the Front National from, you know, studying politics and, like, was kind of horrified by their existence. But then what I noticed is that the Front National propaganda was like, yes, we are racist. Like, it said things like, yes to racism on their stickers they put up in the subway. And I remember kind of thinking about this because it was so new to me to see this and thinking, you know what? At least they said it. And so much of North American racism is buried beneath stereotyping and um, kind of assumptions and kind of really indirect and insidious ways of discriminating against people and um, making people's lives worse. And there was something refreshing about the Canadian, about the French, um, you know, straight up were racist, right? Because if someone admits they're racist, then you can argue with them about it. Um, I'm not certain if that makes it easier to respond to Islamophobia in the U.S. when you have a figurehead like Trump who is just straight up going to say things. Um, I do think this is a moment where the U.S. has an advantage in that American social movements 
can mobilize the kind of distaste for Trump's overt racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, to say, hey, I think this thing is wrong. I think we're doing this wrong. Um, And I even think looking at the reaction to the Muslim ban in the U.S. versus the reaction to the... um, to NSEERS, which was a registration program for Muslim immigrants in um, 2003 is when it got started, nobody turned out against NSEERS. The ACLU didn't really turn out against it. I think they probably opposed it because they would have opposed it. Um, And some smaller organizations opposed it. Basically, nobody who was an Arab did anything about an Arab or Muslim. Um, The Muslim ban happened, and like every white person I know was at an airport with a sign. You know, like I'm, I'm taking this call from my mother's suburban block in, uh, outside Philadelphia, and like half the houses on the street have a hate has no home here sign posted outside them in English and Urdu and Arabic, right? Like all of a sudden, people took the extreme grossness of Trump's way of framing these things, and it became a mobilization tactic. So... excuse me, to a certain extent, this is an advantage that can be used right now. The fact that Trump is super gross on these issues and not just, not just doing things that are wrong, but like viscerally, you don't want to be associated with that, right? Like revulsion is a tactic you can use in politics. So, you know, he gives us a nice target. Right. Whereas the much more insidious forms of this that are at work in Canadian politics are sometimes a lot harder to pin down. Okay, so perhaps uh, Trump is becoming, uh, ironically, a bit more, a bit more French, a bit more like the Front National, in that he's more honest about his racism than uh, than uh, his predecessors. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, this is he's willing to express it bluntly. And there have always been people in the U.S. who have said it that way, but they've rarely had a political platform as big as him. So tell us about, um, you mentioned some of your work was in, in on social movements and community organization. Um, what Perhaps you can talk about that, but, but also more broadly, what are the methods that uh, you know interested people can use to to, to counteract these, uh, uh, these shifts towards a... Uh, more racist and Islamophobic and just generally more miserable world. Are, are there things that people can do, or is it, uh, or is it just you protest and then you wait? No, I do think I do think there are things that can do. And one thing I'd really like to encourage people to do is to get put their support behind organizations that um, are narrowly focused on working with marginalized communities or addressing kind of more specific issues. I was really heartened by when people turned out to protest the first round of the Muslim ban. I've been really heartened by how many people have been turning out to protest every single thing. Um, Every time the Trump administration does something ridiculous, there are people who are there to protest it. And that's been really nice to see, Um, particularly as someone who, who my kind of, well, I'm the child of a hippie, so I have lots of ancestral knowledge about protest movements in the U.S. But when I was trying to be an anti-war organizer in 2001, 2002, 2003 in university, we didn't get a lot of support, right? Um, and we weren't able to change the discourse. And now I feel like the quote-unquote resistance is changing the discourse. But the one thing I saw is when people wanted to give money to support opposition to the Muslim ban, everybody gave their money to the ACLU. 
The ACLU is a fantastic organization that does important issues around civil liberties. But a lot of the actual legal challenges and support were being fought by smaller organizations um, like the National Immigrant Law Coalition um, or uh, by local groups, right? And um, it was uh, disheartening to see that everybody went for the big name mainstream organizations because they knew them for obvious reasons. But so much of the work that's being done to combat Islamophobia, to support organized and strong Muslim communities, Arab communities, immigrant communities in the U.S., is being done by smaller folks. And so I'd encourage people, if you're in the U.S., to seek out the immigrant coalitions and the um, people who are working with immigrant communities where you are or where you have ties to. So as a, uh, as a former New Yorker, I, I give a lot of my support to groups like um, uh, the New York Immigration Coalition um, and to uh, other New York City-based groups. Um, and particularly the New York Immigration Coalition does great work with farm workers upstate, which is a major issue um, that needs to be addressed in immigration justice. Um, and so I think find the organizations that are close to you that are rooted in communities um, that are, to whatever extent possible, led by people of color, um, and, and throw some of your effort behind those, because we can all turn out to the protests, and we need somebody to be arguing in the Supreme Court on these issues, but community power takes small, local-level organizing, and it requires that people develop resources. So moving resources towards those communities to work for themselves is the biggest thing you can do. If you're not in the U.S., you can definitely still, you should be supporting whoever is where you are and whatever the issues are where you are, because I think sometimes the local is really neglected. But then I think, you know, seek out some of these, even just more specialized, but national level organizations, right? To look at who's really doing critical work that integrates communities and brings real kind of power down to the grassroots level give those folks your support because I think they need it. Okay, so it's a bit like uh, think global anti-racism but uh, support local anti-racism. Oh, ex exactly. I think this is who, I think, you know, like, yeah, we need to support the big picture stuff too, right? But if we want depth of change, go local and go community-based. Um, I guess finally, just let me ask you about how you see this, this dynamic uh, developing, changing over the next 10 to, to 20 years if it changes at all? Um, I mean, so I really struggle with prediction because I feel like two things are simultaneously true in U.S.-Middle East relations. One is that nothing changes, and one is that when something changes, you, you have no warning. It just kind of blink, and it changes, right? <laughs> like, things stay, you know, um, U.S.-Middle East policy has stayed remarkably consistent since 67, basically. Um, and, you know, before that, there's been a lot of continuity. And so it's hard to kind of predict when, when and how things are going to shift. Um, what I, what I would expect is to actually see the U S has lost a lot of credibility in the region as an actor. Um, and I would actually expect to see that continue to slide. Um, the U.S., you know, doesn't have the ability to dictate terms 
um, in a lot of conversations. People are willing to operate around it. Um, sometimes that's the benefit of other actors like the Russians or the Saudis um, or the Iranians and because they, they have more face validity from regional actors. Um, I'm not convinced that's in the best interest of anybody, but I'm not convinced that you know the U.S.'s predominance is in the best interest of anybody. What I'd love to see in the region is a greater emphasis on um, kind of internal decision making and, you know, I mean, whatever. I'd love to see a, you know, people's revolution where everybody is, everything is controlled by the people who actually are most affected and, you know, there's complete democracy and yada, yada, yada. I'd like that in Canada and the U.S. too. Um, but what I'd love to see is the region kind of standing up for itself and being able to not so much just shuttle between regional powers who want to poke, its own, poke it to go in its own direction, but to see countries identifying where they have alliances with each other and where they don't, and being able to kind of shift and move more according to their own internal priorities. But like I said, I don't have any great hope for huge systemic change where everything gets fixed like that, but neither do I have, neither am I convinced that everything's just going to stay the same forever. Okay. That's, that's great. That's a, that's a great answer. Thanks. Um, is there, is there anything else you, you think uh, you'd want, you'd want to add that I, I should have asked you and I didn't ask you? You know, it would behoove all of us when we're studying and thinking about the U S to be really sure that we are not treating it as an exceptional case as we're doing so, right? Like the U.S. does a lot of things in which there are international parallels and parallels in other political systems worldwide. Um, I've kind of felt, as I watched a lot of the internal nepotism that happened in the early days of the Trump administration, I was like, this is the most Middle Eastern government the U.S. has ever had because everybody's somebody's cousin. Um, and and see how well that worked out for the Trump administration. Um, but, uh, but kind of the more we look at the U.S. and not try to think about how is it different and distinct from everything else in the world, but how is the U.S. populist right like the populist right of Europe? And what have we learned from the longer electoral history of the racist populist right in Europe about what feeds into it, right? The more we think comparatively and the more we think about other countries' attitudes towards some of these issues, I think the better those of us who want to make change in these areas will be able to come up with tactics. Mm -hmm. That's Yeah, that's a great point. I, I mean, in some ways, the United States is, of course, exceptional because it's the world's predominant power, but it's, it's still, I mean, it's, it's follows in the lineage of of europe as a as an imperial power i suppose and uh and and is not yeah it's not immune to many of the other um sort of uh well i suppose politics is is different but it's the same everywhere right exactly like there's absolutely stuff that is u.s specific and yet that's because there's stuff that's specific to every single country everywhere right so like you know Know, know how to not let specificity of your case. I'm a research methods teacher, right? You can hear this in my voice. Know how to not let the specificity of your case overwhelm the generalizability of the frameworks you're talking about. And Ameri um, American political science is freaking terrible at that. Just 
for the record. <laughs> This podcast series was originally produced with the help and support of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa, and we're still extremely grateful to them. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Bleach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to. If you're celebrating, then Merry Christmas. We'll be back in a few days with another episode. Ho 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 